Today's podcast is brought to you by Hemonk.org. Hemonk.org's easy-to-use platform updated by disease-specific specialists from across the country is your perfect pocket reference for all of your chemotherapy-related questions. Best part, it's free. Check out Hemonk.org today. That's H-E-M-O-N-C dot O-R-G. Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rolo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we start on a brand new adventure, this time going through the fundamentals of diffuge large B-cell lymphoma. I'm really excited for this series. In my clinic, I mainly see lymphoma patients. The VA, I see a little bit of everything. This is my favorite type of malignancy, highly curable, lots of new advances, and really this is something that confused me for several years, so I'm excited to break it down for everybody else. Yeah, I'm excited to get into this too. I feel like it's one of the more common lymphomas that I'm seeing, or at least more common that I need to treat right away. So excited to get into this. Yeah, guys, let's go ahead and do it. Let's roll that show. All right, y'all. So new series, and I think we should pause and, Vivek, I haven't gotten an update on what you're watching on TV lately. What's the latest? The latest these days is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Excellent sitcom. I mean, there's a lot of good sitcoms out there. Parks and Rec, The Office, all produced by Mike Shore, who's incredible. Like, that dude has made every excellent show on television. Highly recommend Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Really, really funny show. I don't think I've gotten into that one. I don't think I've actually ever seen an episode. I brought back Jack Ryan because I never got to finish the series. So now I'm trying to do that as best as I can. I may have to check it out. I think Logan was a fan of the show, but we don't watch it routinely. I think thanks for the heads up. You got to go with it. And Jack Ryan's good too. You know, John Krasinski, he's, he's yeah, doing some very good Very different than his character on The Office, for sure. <laughs> very, very different. Very, very yeah, different. I still just don't see him as an action hero. Maybe that'll change if I watch the show. I think he does a pretty good job. You let me know. But guys, I'm really excited. You know, we are starting a new series, this time talking all about diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, so another malignant hematology topic. And so I'm super excited. I'm super game. And as we've been doing, Vivek, do you want to take us through a case and that'll set the stage for our discussion today? Yeah, let's do it. So this is a guy that I saw at the VA. 68-year-old male with history of castrate-sensitive metastatic prostate cancer, Lupron, and abiraterone plus prednisone for several years with well-controlled disease and an undetectable PSA. He presents to oncology clinic for routine follow-up. He now reports a one-month history of fever, drenching night sweats, and 15-pound unintentional weight loss with poor appetite. He reports noticing a few lumps on the right side of his neck. And notably on his history, he served in Vietnam and had significant Agent Orange exposure. So now we have a patient with a solid tumor diagnosis, previously well-controlled, who presents with new adenopathy in his neck, potentially concerning for progression of disease or small cell transformation of his prostate cancer. So how would you go about approaching this patient? Whenever you see a patient that has a history of metastatic cancer, the first thing you should be thinking about is the most obvious. Is this a progression of their known cancer? And I like that you mentioned small cell transformation. It's a real phenomenon that can happen with prostate. And it doesn't, of course, would cause an increase in disease burden without a corresponding increase in the PSA. So it's something to think about. But for me, lymphadenopathy with B symptoms should always raise the alarm bell for lymphoma. 
Although you have to think about other things like infection and solid tumor malignancy, but the B symptom, it makes me worry that this is a new diagnosis this patient's experiencing. The key here is to not wait too long to make this diagnosis because large B cell lymphomas are aggressive and they can progress really quickly. So if that's anywhere on your differential, you have to be expedited in how you're getting this workup done. You always want to start by performing a thorough physical exam, examining the neck, the axillary lymph nodes, the inguinal lymph nodes, basically any of these lymph node beds you can access externally. You can sort of inform potential targets for biopsy with that type of exam. And so other than getting labs like a PSA and an LDH to try and figure out what might be going on, you'd also want to get a provider on the phone that could do an FNA. If we're worried about this potentially being a solid tumor, that can kind of help us make that decision or make that branch point really quickly. You can get that done usually same day, depending on where you're at. And it can tell you right away if the cells you're looking at look like solid tumor cells or more like something else that would require additional workup in the future. All right, that's perfect. And so we did the exam. Our patient had palpable right cervical adenopathy, bilateral axillary adenopathy, and bilateral inguinal adenopathy. While the labs that we ordered are in process, we called our friendly pathologist who's planning to come up to perform an FNA, given that we're fortunate to have that same day capability at our center and at our VA. So can we go through a little bit more information on what an FNA provides and the utility in the diagnosis of lymphoma? So listeners, you'll remember that in our first four episodes, we actually talked all about some of these really important tests. We talked about important tests, including flow cytometry, the immunohistochemistry, cytogenetics, and molecular testing. So if you haven't listened to those, we highly, highly recommend going back and checking those out. These are going to be critical to any discussion that we can have about things like lymphoma. So then you'll recall that an FNA or a fine needle aspirate is a biopsy technique that gives us a small sample of cells to analyze. It can easily distinguish a solid tumor malignancy, but remember though, here it is not ideal for lymphoma because we don't get any information about the lymph node architecture. The bottom line is that we're basically looking at the phenotype of the cell and we're looking at the morphology to try to determine what the cells would look like. So for instance, prostate cancer cells versus a normal lymphoid cells versus atypical lymphoid cells. So the point of us mentioning to get an FNA here, especially for this patient that has a history of metastatic prostate cancer, is to try to quickly rule out prostate cancer as the etiology for his lymphadenopathy and try to convince ourselves that we need to go down another pathway. We can also then perform IHC to determine the protein expression. Remember, that's the phenotype of the cells that we're looking at. And because the cells are aspirates in suspension, remember that that means we can also run them in flow cytometry. Remember, Dan said anything can basically run in flow as long as it's in solution. So these cells are an aspirate. We can run them on a flow cytometry to determine the cell surface expression and get a sense of the size and granularity of the cells as well. So a lot of really critical information that we can get very quickly off that FN but remember, for final diagnosis, though, we're definitely going to need a bigger sample. All right. So his labs came back, and the PSA remains undetectable. LDH is elevated at 480, and his labs are otherwise at his baseline. The FNA came back with concern for a B-cell lymphoma. Flow cytometry showed CD10 positive and CD20 positive B-cells with increased forward scatter. So in this case, when I looked at that, to me, I'm saying, hey, this actually seems like possibly a large cell lymphoma. So, Dan, can you explain why I think this is a large cell lymphoma? Sure. And, you know, I want to reinforce what Ronick said. For this series in particular, it's going to be important to know a lot of that 
stuff we talked about in our early pathology episode. So definitely worth giving those a listen if you haven't yet. But when we're looking at a sample, particularly an FNA, one of the first things we're looking at is the morphology of the cells. So you can see that these cells are large in size. That could tip you off that this might be a large B cell diagnosis. Flow cytometry is going to help further define the exact phenotype of cells, looking at the particular pattern of protein markers on the surface of each cell. And we know that CD10 and CD20 are associated with B cells that originated in the germinal center. We'll talk more about that in a little while. But there's another thing that we can get from flow cytometry in terms of cell size. So instead of just looking at a small sample, we can look at tens of thousands of cells all at once uh, with flow cytometry. And if you see increased forward scatter, that generally means that the cells that are passing by the laser are larger in size. And increased side scatter would suggest that there's lots of stuff inside the cells to scatter the light. So that's where you're seeing cells that have a lot of granularity, that sort of thing. So those are the main things that they were probably referencing or probably thinking about when they came to this diagnosis. So Vivek, as someone that does take care of patients with lymphoma, I'm sort of curious to know your approach. So now we're concerned for a possible large B-cell process, but we don't yet have a definitive diagnosis of this FNA. We have a suspicion that it's likely not prostate and it's likely a lymphoma, but we don't yet have a diagnosis. And certainly, as we've highlighted, this is a lot faster than waiting to get them in for a core or an excisional. But what are your initial steps for diagnosis and staging to make a more formal diagnosis for a patient like this? It's a great question, and there's a lot of times where we're consulted or I see a patient and I look at their pathology report, and I think every person should look at the pathology reports and understand what these CD markers mean. CD10 positivity, to me, has a differential that includes diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, follicular, and Burkitt. And those are the three things that are popping to my head initially. When I'm thinking this germinal center origin, those are the three lymphomas I think about. So maybe this guy had a follicular lymphoma. I don't trust an FNA to tell me if I have a large cell lymphoma or an indolent follicular lymphoma. You need more tissue. You need the context of the lymph node architecture. So when we think about it, we have to get a bigger biopsy, either an excisional lymph node biopsy or a core biopsy. That exam is critical. There was a patient I saw in the ER a couple days ago, actually, when I was on service, I palpated his neck nodes, his axillary nodes, inguinal nodes, didn't have a PET scan, consulted surgery. They took him to the OR next day and did an excisional inguinal lymph node biopsy. You don't need the PET scan before you do that. So early referral to a surgeon for an excisional lymph node biopsy, especially if they're palpable. That's how the surgeons are doing it too. They're looking at what's palpable. You don't need a PET scan before that happens. So an early referral to that's important. Sometimes, you know, you might have a patient with like a mediastinal mass can't necessarily get that incisional lymph node biopsy of the mediastinum, right? That's a bigger surgery, and you might think about like a core biopsy. And so when it's not feasible, a core biopsy is reasonable. So first things first, expediting the workup for the biopsy. The other things that we think about is a PET CT for staging. This is better than a CT scan. It will upstage about 30% of patients. If you just got a CT scan, you would misclassify patients 30% of the time. So it's really important to get that PET-CT scan for staging if you can. For patients who are super sick in the hospital, regular old CT neck, chest, abdomen, pelvis is just fine because you need to get treatment started urgently. But for these that you have time for, you want to get that PET-CT scan. And LDH is important for prognostication that we'll talk about. And lastly, viral studies, particularly hepatitis B. When we give patients with B-cell lymphoma treatment, we give them rituximab, and we worry about reactivation of hepatitis B. It's not a contraindication. We just also start them concurrently on treatment. So 
always remember hepatitis B, LDH, and you can always throw on that HIV and hep C, but that hepatitis B is the one that we act on when we start treatment with rituximab. So flipping through the chart, it looks like this patient was seen by surgery and had a PET scan scheduled a week after that appointment. He went ahead and got that excisional right cervical node the day after his PET, and clearly the early referral definitely made a big difference in getting this workup expedited, so I'm glad y'all did that. It says his biopsy result was consistent with double expressor large B-cell lymphoma. It was a germinal center subtype by cell of origin classification. The report did make mention of effacement of lymph node architecture by large B-cells. Flow cytometry was consistent with what we saw in the FNA with CD10 and CD20 positivity, and also mentioned monotypic kappa-restricted B-cells with increased forward scatter. On IHC, 60% of the cells showed expression of MYC and BCL2, and the KI67 was reported at 60%. Still waiting on cytogenetics at this point, but let's just break down that report systematically, starting with cell of origin. So now it's time for another history lesson that I always like to do that some of the listeners are probably like, God, this guy skipped 30 seconds times two or whatever if you don't care about this. But it's really important to understand how we got to the way we think about these cancers. So in the 1800s, there was a dude named Thomas Hodgkin who discovered Hodgkin lymphoma. So everyone who comes to clinic to see me is like, do I have Hodgkin or non-Hodgkin? I'm like, let me tell you, that was invented in the 1800s. Things are way more complicated than that. Over the years, we found out, well, okay, there was Hodgkin, but there's also 61 different other types of lymphomas, and now there's even more. So it used to just be Hodgkin, non-Hodgkin, and that's all we had. And then we got smarter, right? We now have passed the 70s and the 80s. Now we're in the 90s. We actually can look at DNA. We looked at gene expression profiling, and at this point, we classified lymphomas based on their histologic characteristics, based on their spread based on where they presented at presentation and their overall response to treatment. But we got smarter, right? We said, okay, now that we have all of those things, we have this entity of non-Hodgkin B-cell lymphoma called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Well, let's get smarter. Let's risk stratify these patients. Let's look at their DNA. And in Nature, published in 2000, we identified three groups based on DNA microarray analysis. One was germinal center B-cell-like. Two was activated B-cell-like, and the other one was just called type 3 gene expression profile. I guess they ran out of fancy names to say, you'd think they would come up with something, but that's where we were. And we found what we knew is that germinal center B-cell-like lymphomas had a significantly better prognosis. It was very prognostic. At the time, though, sending off molecular testing on all these patients wasn't cost-effective, inefficient, right? You can't do that for every single person in the early 2000s, right? That's not really possible. And There was a a really smart pathologist, Christine Hans, who still works at the University of Nebraska, who published a study that found IHC surrogates to the gene expression profile, and this is called the Hans algorithm. So she was super smart. This was published a couple of years after that initial paper. So this is blood in 2003, and it was really developing an algorithm to identify germinal center B-cell and origin versus non-germinal center B-cell origin subtypes. What we did with that was look at CD10, BCL6, and another protein called MUM1. It's an algorithm that you guys should just look up. We'll link it to our show notes. But the bottom line is it was just as prognostic as that gene expression profiling, obviously a lot cheaper. And the one thing to remember is that CD10 is germinal center in origin. Often BCL6 is germinal center in origin. Why is that important? Because you have a differential diagnosis, a follicular lymphoma, 
large B-cell lymphoma, and Burkitt lymphoma for germinal center in origin. So just remember, CD10 is germinal center in origin. Look up that algorithm. One thing you'll notice there is that MUM1 positivity is activated B-cell subtype, and I just remember my mom taught me the ABCs. So you don't have to memorize it. It's old, it's prognostic, it is not predictive, and will not change treatment. Do either of you have trouble remembering the nuances of all of these chemotherapy regimens? You know, Rona, I don't have that problem. And you know why? It's not because I know everything, but it's because of hamoc.org. And anytime I see a new patient that I'm about to start chemotherapy, I go to this website. It's free, easy to use, evidence-based. It's my go-to anytime I start my patients because it gives me the dosing schedule and all of the up-to-date information. Yeah, I'm a big fan too. I use it today in clinic, in fact. Not only do they break down the regimens by disease subtype, but they also provide links to those original articles that led to the approval of the therapies listed. Since these pages are updated constantly by disease-specific experts, you'll always be up to date on the latest regimens and dosing schedules. It's a great supplement to our fellow on-call website. Learn more about hemonc.org by visiting their website. That's H-E-M-O-N-C dot O-R-G. So as you said, Vivek, then the cell of origin is determined by the Hans algorithm, which correlates well to gene expression profiles. In the future, we may see more molecular testing of lymphoma, but for now, this is one tool that we certainly have for risk stratification, as you pointed out. And also, I want to highlight what you said there. It is prognostic, but it is not predictive. So it does not change our management. So this is just, you know, interesting to look up and include perhaps in your note or something about a patient, but certainly will not change your next steps. So what is this idea about double expressor and how do the cytogenetics come into play here? And then we often hear about things like double and triple hit lymphoma. Can we just define all of these key terms? The big three things to remember are MYC, BCL2, and BCL6, and that's MYC, M-Y-C. So one of the most important oncogenes in lymphoma is this MYC gene. In short, it's a gene that makes cells enter the S phase, so it pushes them through the mitotic cycle. It's located on chromosome 8. Commit that to memory. This is something that's important to know. And the one mnemonic that I've heard, and I did not personally invent, I believe this is Vivek's mnemonic, is that the black pool ball, like if you're playing a game of pool, is the eight ball, and it's kind of a stressful stressful ball. Like you, you're always trying to either avoid or be very precise with hitting the eight ball. So it's the most important ball of the game. That's where the MYC gene is. It's the most important ball in the lymphoma game in this case. So chromosome rearrangements are really important. And on chromosome eight, they're considered high risk if that MYC gene is rearranged. BCL2, another important player here, it's an anti-apoptotic protein. So if it has increased in activation, or is overexpressed, then we think about a more aggressive B-cell lymphoma because it's not as responsive to those internal cell signals that are promoting apoptosis and planned cell death. This is on chromosome 18 and has a pretty consistent or pretty regular translocation partner, as many of these involved genes in cancers do. And in this case, it's chromosome 14. So the translocation is T1418 that's commonly associated with this BCL2. BCL6 is another one that downregulates P53 MYC and BCL2. So rearrangement here can be an issue, but keep in mind that it does have a role in downregulating P53. So BCL6 is another important player here. It downregulates a few of these genes, P53, MYC, and BCL2, 
And so keep in mind that while it does downregulate P53, a tumor suppressor, so that's bad, it does also downregulate some of these other genes like BCL2 and MYC, which would actually be good. It would probably be better for the tumor to not have those as overexpressed. But generally speaking, P53 downregulation is a pretty big deal, so we do consider that an issue. It's located on chromosome 3, so the mnemonic here is it suppresses three proteins, and therefore you can think, okay, well, that's chromosome 3. That's just one easy way to remember. Really the most important aspect when looking over these cytogenetic reports is to remember that they are large-scale chromosomal rearrangements. We're only really able to see large translocations, additions, inversions, and deletions on the tens of thousands of base pair level. And so when we're talking about this double-hit lymphoma, what we mean is there's a rearrangement in that most important chromosome, that MYC on chromosome 8, and either BCL2 or BCL6 rearrangement. Again, not talking about additional copies, but just a rearrangement that you can detect on fish. So-called triple-hit lymphoma is just where you get rearrangements in all three. These triple-hit patients have by far the worst prognosis, and knowing this status will change management for your patients. Unless they have purely localized disease and can get away with something a little bit less intense, most of these patients are going to present with more advanced disease, and the management is different. You have to be more aggressive with them. So, Dan, I wanted to interject here. I apologize, but I just wanted to really highlight something that's important that I hope our listeners don't overlook here. So what Dan was just describing is double and triple hit, which, as you mentioned, is based on rearrangements on fish. So this is different than what you may also see as double expressor and things like that. And this always confused me. And so that's why I wanted to interject here. So what Dan just defined is double versus triple hit, which is using fish to look for rearrangements in MYC, BCL2, and BCL6. And this is in contrast then to double expressor, which I think you're just about to tell us about no, I'm glad you made that distinction. And the terminology here, you do have to be precise with the terms. When we're talking about a hit, that's talking about a change to a gene, right? We think about the X number of hit hypothesis to oncogenesis or whatever it is they always said in the textbooks. So when we're talking about double and triple hit, those are exactly what you said, changes to the genes, chromosomal rearrangements that are detected on fish. We call this other sort of classification double expressor because we're looking at overexpression on IHC, you know, how much are these proteins being expressed in the cells? And so double expressor is defined by IHC overexpression greater than 50% of MYC and BCL2. So just those two. And it's considered a poor prognostic marker. It's definitely a prognostic thing. And we can understand that these patients do have a worse prognosis, but it's not necessarily as important as the cytogenetic information that we've gotten. And it's currently sort of under debate whether or not it makes sense to change management in terms of systemic therapy for patients that are double expressor. But you do always want to give CNS prophylaxis when a patient is either double hit, triple hit, or double expressor. We know enough in terms of the prognosis that we do want to give CNS prophylaxis to these patients, but double expressor, it's just not considered quite as strong of a risk to warrant aggressive systemic therapy like we see with double and triple hit. Okay, got it. So that's very helpful. So when we're talking about double and triple hit, we're looking at fish rearrangements. When we're talking about double expressor, for instance, it's looking at IHC. So that's using immunohistochemical staining to assess protein production. 
And as you alluded to, double expressor may not change the regimen that we use, unlike someone with a double or triple hit on fish. And so that's key. But the one thing it may change is we know enough about double expressor such that we are going to be reaching for CNS prophylaxis. And so just treat these patients a little bit more aggressively, but not change their overall systemic disease. And I think that is so, 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 so critical for us to understand as we talk about our patients with DLBCL. I think the one other thing that we mentioned on the PATH report was also that KI-67 score. And so can one of you tell us a little bit about what the role of KI-67 is? A high KI-67 tells us we have a more proliferative lymphoma, but it has less prognostic significance than things like the clinical stage, multiple sites of extranodal involvement, and things like cytogenetics. There is one thing every hemoc doctor needs to know, and that's a KI-67 of 100% should be presumed Burkitt lymphoma until proven otherwise. To diagnose Burkitt lymphoma, you also need a rearrangement in the eight ball, right? The most important one, that MIC rearrangement to diagnose Burkitt. But a KI-67 of 100% should raise the alarm bells for Burkitt lymphoma, and that would change your management for a more intensive therapy and definitely giving things like CNS prophylaxis. So remembering KI-67 100% associated with Burkitt lymphoma, you need the eight ball rearrangement in MIC. Okay, so I think we've covered the PATH report pretty well. The cell of origin is essentially it's an IHC surrogate for gene expression and risk stratification and is prognostic, but it doesn't necessarily change our management. Whereas the chromosomal rearrangements, the MIC, BCL6, and BCL2 status are really important for figuring out how we're going to treat a specific patient. We talked about how MIC is the eight ball. It's the most important one. It's located on chromosome eight. We also covered that double hit refers to genetic rearrangements, not additional copies of MIC, BCL2, and BCL6. And so let's get back to our patient. Let's say that we got the PET-CT back. It shows intensely avid lymph nodes above and below the diaphragm, as well as diffuse increased uptake in the bone marrow. How do we take this information and translate that into a stage? You'll hear many people refer to the Ann Arbor staging and Lugano staging, and this confused me for an incredibly long period of time, and so now I'm going to decode all this. Ann Arbor staging is the older and more outdated system that was truly developed before the advent of PET-CT imaging. With the introduction of PET, we talked about how we changed our staging in about 30% of patients compared to CT imaging. So what happened was a group of lymphoma doctors met in Lugano, Switzerland, and there's still a Lugano conference that happens in Switzerland. And this was in 2007 where they developed the Lugano staging system or the Lugano modification of the Ann Arbor staging. And the key point to recognize when this group met is that we really said patients are either early versus advanced stage. And this matters a great deal for both Hodgkin lymphoma and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. It has implications in treatment, and we'll discuss this over the next few episodes. Early stage is stage one or two. Stage one, one node, single node, or one nodal group. Just Google a picture and we'll include it in our show notes of what these nodal groups are. Don't memorize them. There's a good picture for all of this stuff. So it's one nodal group, single node, or only one extra nodal site of disease. For example, maybe a chin lymphoma. I've seen that before, a chin mass, and that's stage one disease still, early stage disease. And this is also could be multiple nodes on the same side of the diaphragm. So that's early stage, same side of the diaphragm. Then we have advanced stage, and that's stage three or four, which is I have nodes above and below the diaphragm. That's stage three. And stage four means I have nodes diffusely and I have extra nodal involvement. 
And that could be, you know, the liver, the lung, bone marrow, bone, skin, any of these sites are considered extranodal disease and can upstage our patients. And the big thing that happened when they met in Lugano that year is that they said, we do not need to perform a bone marrow biopsy for staging in our patients because one, PET-CT is sensitive, and two, if you're typically, if you have bone marrow involvement, you're already going to be stage three or four anyway. So it's not changing your management. And our prognostic system, stage three and four, are viewed the same. And let's talk a little bit about that. So, Renick, the last thing we want to talk about today is the IPI score used for risk stratification. So this is where that LDH comes in. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So once you have the PET scan and that tells you the extent of disease, we also then want to risk stratify our patients. And so the mnemonic to remember here is APPLES, A-P-L-E-S. And this stands for age performance status, LDH, whether or not they have external disease, as in more than one set of external disease, and their staging. And so this is how we take all this information that we're collecting in our workup for our patient to decide what their risk stratification is. So again, their age, their performance status, which we're going to know by looking at our patient and knowing them, LDH, which we said is an upfront lab that you want to check on these patients, and the PET scan will answer that question about extranodal disease, as well as the staging of the patient based on the Lugano staging criteria. So guys, I think that this makes a whole lot of sense. And, you know, I think at least I tried to emphasize the things that always confuse me. And I think you guys also did the same. The treatment for patients with DLBCL is very nuanced and it's very dependent on this exact initial workup. And so much important information is obtained at this time. So it's important to understand what all these different factors are, understand their implications, and understand that everything that comes after this is going to be contingent on this workup that we're discussing. So go to the show notes, listen to it again if you have to. This is critical for the care of a patient with DLBCL. Yeah, I couldn't agree with more, Ronak, and really excited to get into the treatment, but I thought this was a great start. Same here. Looking forward to next week. Well, then I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Peace.